Good morning. Good morning, guys. All right, before we start, let's do a quick check-in. We are midway through, in case you're keeping count, we're midway through the Christmas season. We're at like the peak of Christmas right now. So I just want to do a, a small check-in here. I used to do these in my classroom when I was middle school. So thumbs up means that you're doing great. Like you want this to last longer. You're, I know, I know. My confirmation class is like, yeah, we're here. All right. But then we have the middle, like I'm okay. I'm doing all right. I'm kind of expecting this to be over soon. I'm kind of glad that it might be over soon. And then we got the ones that are down that are like, oh, no, no, no. I didn't want this to start in the first place. And this has been 12 days too long. All right. So we have up, middle, and high. You can shield yours from your spouse if you need to. Just hold up a hand, all right, or from your children. Okay, so I want to take, take a quick check-in. Let's see, how's Christmas going? Good, good. We got a, a lot of issues with honesty in our, in, our, in our congregation that we need to evaluate, but here's what I expected, and I really think that some of you deep down are a little bit more around here, because that's not surprising to me. Because I, I think around this time, and certainly by next Sunday, y'all will be in this place of like varying degrees of experience. Some of y'all are like kind of getting weary, like you're, you're a little tired of the to-do list, and then you keep like forgetting those gifts that someone else gave you that you need now to go, you didn't have them on their list, but they dropped off a package of something, and now you need to go get them a package of something, and you are stressing about that add to the list, and the to-do list is getting overwhelming, and you're feeling a little bit weary and very thankful that this season only lasts 25 days. And then some of you are actually kind of the opposite. Like you are, um, I called it like you're anticipating disappointment. Like you put up that number on the advent calendar. This happens a lot to kids. And they're like, oh, but that's one less day. That's one less day. We're one less day. We're, we have one less day to get to Christmas. And that you're kind of anticipating that total like slide after December 25th. And you know it's coming and it comes every year. And you're dreading it. And you're building this disappointment in your heart. And that kind of is tapering or tampering your Christmas experience. And then some of y'all are just ready to get this over with. It's been a hard year. There's been losses that you didn't expect. This Christmas looks different than you thought it would for a lot of reasons. And you just are not willing to fake it or to buy into it this year. And you're over it. And somewhere around the middle of December, we all start to experience these feelings. And it's so odd to me because those are kind of the opposite of what we experience in the season called Advent. So as I was trying to figure out why do we collectively have this kind of dread somewhere around mid-December, I started to think that maybe we aren't celebrating Advent at all. Maybe we're celebrating something else. And so I started to give it a name. I called it Christmas Part 2, kind of like a, a movie sequel. And it's funny because for Christmas part two, it's like what most of us know is Christmas. Like it is, it is what we've known for at least 200 years of how we celebrate Christmas. And it's been around so long and it involves all the things you probably think of when you think of Christmas. Like the secret Santa exchanges and then you have like all the department stores that are decked out from November 1st on. You have the holiday cups from Starbucks. You have every lyric to the song. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. All those things, in my mind, it's helpful to categorize them as Christmas part two. And I started to think about this in terms of movies, because one of the Christmas part two things I participate in is Christmas movies. I love Christmas movies, and I watch them all the way from Thanksgiving on. But there's something to know about all movies, is that you always have like the original 
Christmas movie, and then you always have the sequels. They always make the sequels. And why the sequels are good, they're worth watching, they're entertaining, they have some good content, they're just missing that little secret sauce that is the original. And nothing represents this more to me than one of my favorite Christmas movies that I watched when I was a child, and I still watch it today. Do y'all know this movie? Do y'all know this movie? What is this? The Santa Claus with an E, right? It's Tim Allen's Santa Claus. And when you watch this movie for the first time, it's so good and it's so creative. Like the name is Santa Claus with an E and there's a clause that makes Tim Allen the Santa and he spends the whole year turning into Santa. And it's so creative and joyful. And especially this scene, the way they depict the North Pole will forever be the North Pole that I subscribe to. It is this magical place where she makes the perfect hot cocoa, this little elf, and she tells him and gives it to him, and it's just magical. Like, there's something about this original movie that I love so much, but of course, capitalism reigns, and we had to make a sequel, so they took everything that was good about this movie, and what did they turn it into? That. That's what they turned it into. That is Santa Claus 2 which came out the next year, Santa Claus 2. And this just describes exactly what we do when we see something good. We see something that is good and has secret sauce to it and is awesome, and we think, oh, we just need to make this bigger and brighter and longer. Let's have more lights and more gifts and more things. Well, we don't need four weeks of Advent. Let's make it eight. Let's start in November. Let's do it bigger. But just like in the movies, you start to miss something. It starts to pull away from what the original secret sauce used to be. And so this Christmas, this Advent, what we've been trying to do as a church is refocus, try to recreate, get a little bit of that secret sauce back. And we represent it in this candle, in a single flame. Light has always been an analogy in Advent. We didn't create it. It comes from scripture, right? When John says that Jesus is the light of the world. And so for centuries, since it's the darkest time of the year, we've been representing Advent with candles. The idea being that that light centers us, that it provides a way in the darkness. It does everything that God does for us. And so this is how we've represented Advent and tried to move away from Christmas part two. Not that it's bad, but maybe that it doesn't sustain us. Because often when we get to the end of Christmas part two, we're left exhausted and disappointed and overwhelmed, and we hit that slump right after December 25th. Whereas maybe in this different season, this Advent, maybe it's a little bit more sustainable. Maybe it's a little bit more in rhythm with how our lives work. There, you know there's a whole nother season that starts on December 25th called Christmas, and guess how long it lasts? Oh, guys, come on. How long does it last? Oh, Lord. I was really beginning to wonder there. Twelve. It lasts 12 days, the 12 days of Christmas, right? So God built in, the church built in this whole other season so we didn't have to experience that slump that we could continue celebrating. But for now, we're in this point of Advent. And we've been talking a lot the last few weeks of, okay, the point of Advent is lighting or the symbol is this flame. How do we see the light? How do we discover it or recognize it? But today I want to shift a little bit from the question of how do we recognize it to what do we do after we recognize it? 
what do we do? How do we respond when we see God breaking in in our world? How do we respond when God breaks into our world in the form of a coincidence or a call or an impulse to do something or change? What do we do? How do we respond? And today we're going to look at a story that we briefly looked at last week that starts with two women. It's the beginning of the Christmas story for me. And if you know about this story, then you know that the women I'm referring to is Elizabeth and her cousin Mary. So Elizabeth is an elderly woman, and she gets news via her priestly husband that she will conceive and that she will bear a son. And that son will be John the Baptist, and he will be the forebearer and tell others about Jesus. And then, of course, the second woman is Mary, who is quite the opposite of Elizabeth, has no status. She's not the priest's wife. She's not even married yet. She's way younger than Elizabeth, and she lives far away in a rural province, whereas Elizabeth lives closer to Jerusalem. And that's where we're going to start today in the Gospel of Luke. Now, a word about the Bible before we dive into it. So normally at this point, I would ask all of you to break out your Bible or your phone and pull it up because I really believe that I'm here teaching you, not that I have all the knowledge, but that you need to understand what it is to look on your own phone and read it, right? It's creating a habit. But here's my caveat. With the Christmas stories... Here's what I know is going to happen. You're going to pull up your phone. You're going to, like, scroll it. But you've read this or heard this so many times, even if you're not religious, that you're just going to glance over it, and it won't seek in. So what I tried to do this time was I looked for a translation that would kind of shock us out of our senses a little bit. And I happened to find one. It's called The Voice. It's a Bible translation from about 10 years ago that I really liked. So we're going to stick with the words on the screen and what I'm reading. But generally, general advice, always follow along on your phone. Okay? So let's start. This is in Luke, and we're starting right after the Elizabeth story, right after Zechariah, her husband, has received word from the angel Gabriel that they will bear a son. This is right after that. So let's read. Six months later in Nazareth, a city in the rural province of Galilee, the heavenly messenger Gabriel made another appearance. This time, the messenger was sent by God to meet with a virgin named Mary, who was engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David himself. The messenger entered her home. Greetings, you are favored, and the Lord is with you. Among all women on the earth, you have been blessed. The heavenly messenger's words baffled Mary, and she wondered what type of greeting this might be. Mary, don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. Listen, you are going to become pregnant. You will have a son, and you must name him Savior or Jesus. And Jesus will become the greatest among all men. So let's stop there for a moment. Because there is kind of a formula of how this is supposed to go after someone comes and tells you you're going to have a baby in the Bible. This isn't the first time this happens in the Bible. It happens lots of other times in the Old Testament where there is someone who is barren or can't have children. And then the angel appears and tells them they're going to have a child. And it's received as this prophecy. And it's really wonderful. But let me tell you what happens after this normally. After a birth announcement, normally the angel just pieces out and leaves. That's it. There's no communication. There's no talking. There's no follow-up. It's just that the angel leaves. That's usually what happens with Ishmael and Isaac and Samson. The angel just leaves. But in this case, the New Testament, you can see that Luke's doing something a little bit different. He's trying to rewrite that narrative a little bit. So before this, when the angel comes to Zechariah, 
Zechariah gets to speak back. And it's a big moment because normally we don't have that. So the angel comes and tells Zechariah and says, hey, you're going to have a son named John. Make sure you name him this. This is what he has to do. And Zechariah, he kind of wastes his chance a little bit. And he says, how can I be sure of this? And instantly after that question, he is silenced. Gabriel gets really mad and he can't talk anymore until John gets born. And so we're seeing that Luke is doing something a little different here. He allowed the people to speak when he was writing. So what is he going to do with Mary? How will Mary respond? And in fact, Luke does do something interesting. He, he makes it so that she asks a question. But I've never been with a man. How can this be possible? She asks a question. And it's interesting because immediately, if you've read Luke and if you're listening to this, if you're an original listener, you're thinking, oh, God, don't ask a question. Mary, you're going to be silenced just like Zechariah. But that, but that isn't what happens actually at all. The messenger, Gabriel, he kind of rewards Mary. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Most High will overshadow you. That's why this holy child will be known not just as your son, but also as the son of God. It sounds impossible, but listen, you know your relative Elizabeth has been unable to bear children and is now far too old to be a mother, yet she has become pregnant as God willed it. Yes, in three months, she will have a son. So the impossible is possible with God. It's a really interesting parallel in terms of how does Mary respond. If that's the question, if the light is the angel in this case, God, breaking into her world, how does Mary respond? And what does scripture tell us about how we're supposed to respond? Well, the first thing that Mary does is she asks a question, but not just any question, not a how can I be sure of this, not a Zechariah question, not a question about proof, not a question about disbelief, but a question about possibility, about process, about faith. She's saying, look, I get it. I, I know that this is going to happen because I know this, this is from God, but I just need a, a little bit more clarification. And instead of God pushing back on that, God says, sure, let me explain it to you. And, and more than that, I'm going to offer you proof in the form of your cousin Elizabeth. I'm going to give you more than you asked for because that question, that thoughtful assessment of the situation, it's a, it's a question based on faith. And we start to understand that things are a little bit different for Mary. The way she's responding to God working in the world, it's, it's starting a new story. A story that we don't know in its fullness yet because Jesus hasn't been born. But something is different about the way God is interacting with us, with humans, as represented by Mary. So... The story, if that was the end, if the answer was, hey, just ask thoughtful questions out of faith, then it would have ended here. But then Luke does something pretty crazy and unusual, something that should catch our attention because, as I said, most birth announcements don't get this far. They don't get to the question part. So what is this trying to tell us in this next part? And this is why I chose this translation because I think it emphasizes exactly what we want to emphasize here. After he has said the impossible is possible with God, Mary says, deciding in her heart, here I am, the Lord's humble servant. As you have said, let it be done to me. Do you see, do you see that there's a pause 
after the angel says that it's impossible to God. There's a pause there. A pause that we shouldn't ignore because most of us are living in that pause. Most of us are living in the place of like, oh, I see the light. I know it's there. I recognize that I'm supposed to call that person or I'm supposed to put down the glass of wine or I'm supposed to repair the relationship with my sister or I'm supposed to invite this person over for dinner. We live in that place of like, I see the light, God. I see what I'm supposed to do. I see the call. I recognize you and your spirit working in the world. Oh, but this is hard. And that's the pause. Because for Mary, it wasn't a given yes. What God was asking her to do was not easy. She was 15. She was not even ready to be married, let alone have a baby. To ask to take your whole life and turn it into a completely different direction. To ask to raise God when no one else had seen God as a human being? That's what God was asking her to do in that pause. Even aside from the social isolation for the explanations that she would have to give for the uncertainty that she faced whether Joseph would stick by her, whether family would stick by her, how she would eat, where she would go, how this would play out. She didn't know. And in that pause... Something happens in Mary, something that I would argue should happen in us. Her heart begins to change, begins to understand, and she, apart from God, makes a choice of yes. This matters, and this is hard, and this is a lot, but I say yes. And there's something really interesting in that for us. Because so often we think that God just comes into the world and makes things happen. And like, that's how it's supposed to be. But what this is saying is saying, no, you have a choice. I rely on you to do my work in the world. I've been thinking a lot about light metaphors recently. And I'm, I'm no good at physics. I didn't. I barely passed. But... I do know a little bit about how magnifying glasses work. Do you know how they work? You have to have a pair of convex lenses, like this. And you take one and you put it close to the object. You take the other and you put it close to your eye. And when you do that, the light bends it and then it magnifies it, right? But you have to have two. In order for a magnifying glass to work, you have to lean in to the light that you want to magnify. And when you do that, God provides the other half of the lens to make that magnification even bigger than you thought possible. Light requires us to magnify it. In order for Jesus' light for that, single light, to be anything in this world, we have to make the choice to say yes to the hard things, to not stay in the pause, to not avoid the light in front of us, but instead to magnify it. And that, that is why that light matters. Because the importance, the secret sauce of that light is the idea 
that Jesus, who could magnify that light on his own if he wanted to, chose not to. Jesus chose us to be part of the story. He said, I know you're flawed and I know you're broken, but I know also that I have placed a light inside of you. And the message this Christmas, if you had to sum it up, if you had to sum up what that secret sauce is about, it's one word in Hebrew, and we just sung about it. Emmanuel. God is with us. God is for us. God is in us. And God will never leave us. I don't know what your Christmas part two is looking like. But if you are feeling discouraged or disappointed or you're getting to a point where you feel like you might break, God has offered us another answer, an answer that fits into the rhythms of our lives, into the rhythms of our hearts, into the rhythms of how we work, and we call it Advent. Focusing on that idea, Emmanuel, will restore you. It will heal you. It will make it so that you can get through not just this season, but this year. And so my prayer for us this Christmas and this Advent is that you not forget that that light exists so that you can say yes, just like Mary. Instead of praying, I am going to read something to close us out. And you all might have seen this coming if you know too much about Mary's story. But often, uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a Christmas song, right, called Mary, Did You Know? And, and in that Christmas song, what's recently occurred to me is that she fully did know what was going to happen with her son. Because she sang a song. A song right after this, right after she sees Elizabeth. And she sings this song, and it's a song that she borrowed. She didn't make it up. She borrowed it from another mother in the Old Testament called Hannah. And she sang this song so profoundly and chose these words so acutely that this, this song has been banned in like 10 countries. To read publicly, you can't read it out loud. And do you know what that song is called in Latin? The Magnificat. Because its first line says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She did know that what she was about to do in that pause, what she was saying yes to, was bigger than she could understand. But it was necessary so that the light could enter into our lives and other lives for years to come. So hear with me as I read the magnifying out loud. My soul magnifies the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day on, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud and their conceit. 
He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel for he has remembered his promise of mercy. The promise he made to our fathers and to Abraham and to his children forever and ever. Amen. We'll now take a moment. The ushers will come forward and want to say in our moment of generosity as the band leads us in this final song. If you'll put your connect cards that you wrote on everyone, just put your name if you know we know your information and drop them into the offering baskets. They come by.